You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Exodus. The book of Exodus underlines God's desire to rescue people from their misery to a life of promise, meaning, and fulfillment. This eight-week series explores key moments within Exodus in order to more fully appreciate God's love for people. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. When I was uh, 16 years old, a friend of mine gave me a Bible like this, a little bit thinner uh, than this one. That would have been intimidating. But he gave me a Bible like this, and uh, he said, hey, you should read this. And I didn't, uh, not for a while at least. Uh, eventually, when I did, I picked up in the New Testament. If you're uh, new to your Bible, the New Testament is about two-thirds the way through the Bible. Old Testament's the big chunk in the beginning, and then the New Testament begins the life of Jesus. I picked up in the New Testament because I had heard from other Christians over the years that the Old Testament uh, was old. It was outdated. It was irrelevant and uh, really not that helpful. Also very confusing, at times scary and boring. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. I'll just read the New Testament. Later on, after I had become a Christian, read through the New Testament, saw the person and ministry and life of Jesus and thought, I have to get to know this man myself became a Christ follower. I had the thought, like, well, why wouldn't I read the Old Testament? I mean, if it's all the words of God, then I want to get to know the whole story. And I picked it up, and what I found is that the Old Testament was not boring and irrelevant and scary. At times it is confusing and scary, but not boring and irrelevant for sure. And I wonder maybe if you're coming in this morning with similar sentiments about the Old Testament, that uh, maybe you're looking at this series in Exodus and you're like, oh man, what a drag. Like, can we get back to the Jesus stuff? Can we get back to the New Testament? What I want to say is just that this series, uh, I think as much as any series we do, has the potential to reveal to us the mysteries of Christ and the glories of the gospel through the way that God delivered his people, Israel, from the slavery that they were in in Egypt. And as a famous pastor, Charles Spurgeon, pastor in the 1800s, always said, he says, every Old Testament story has a red thread connected to it, that if you follow, will lead you to the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. I believe the Exodus story is going to do that for us. Today we're in Exodus chapter 12, and up to this point, Pharaoh, who is king of Egypt, has had the Israelites in slavery for quite a while. Actually, there were pharaohs before him who also had the Israelites in slavery. They've been in slavery for over 400 years. Now, to put that in context for you, like, this is the people of God, right? So, like, the people of God who have the blessings of God, who are meant to have a blessed life, who are meant to have all this provision and all this protection from God. They're meant to go through all the lands and be the people of God who are blessed and favored everywhere they go. For 400 years, they've been enslaved by Egyptians, I don't know if you can relate to this in your life where like you have these promises from God, these, this expectation of favor and blessing, and then you go through life. It's just like, God, well, like, where is that? That's what, the, that's what the Israelites were going through. As we saw last week, God appeared to a man named Moses in a burning bush. And he's like, Moses, you're my guy. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Moses has this debate. And he's like, I'm not your guy. I don't think I can do it. And God's like, you're my guy. Get on with it. Like, don't, don't correct me. I'm God. You're my guy. So you're going to do this. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh. He's like, hey, Pharaoh, I'm from God. You need to let the Israelites go once and for all. And Pharaoh's like, you're a joke. No way. And Moses goes back to God. He's like, God, he's not listening. God's like, go to him again. 
And nine times in a row, there are nine different plagues that come upon the Egyptians from God as warnings and as threats from God saying, you better let my people go or I'm about to open up a can in this place. And so nine times over and over and over, God does this. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and he's like, hey, there's about to be frogs in the nation. And Pharaoh's like, I don't care. Moses is like, all right. Frogs fill the nation. Pharaoh's like, all right, mercy, mercy. Like, I'm done. I can't handle it. This happens nine times. And every single time, Pharaoh refuses to release the people of God. And here comes the final stroke. What is the final stroke? It's here in chapter 12. If you want to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. It's here in verse 12. Exodus 12, 12. The final stroke. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. God's going to strike all the firstborn. Every firstborn son in every Egyptian household is going to be struck. Now it's interesting if you go a little further, not in this uh, first passage we looked at together, but later in the same chapter in verse 23, Moses is speaking to the Israelites about the Passover night and he says this. He says, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The destroyer. Now what's interesting about this is that sin in our lives always brings destruction. Whether it's a lie that destroys trust, anger that destroys love, anxiety that destroys peace. Sin always brings destruction. But this isn't the normal kind of destruction that we see sin bringing. This is a particular kind of destruction that God is bringing on the households of Egypt. Here in this story, for one night, God says, I am going to allow a preliminary, temporary judgment day on the entire people of Egypt that is going to be a foreshadow of a judgment day to come that is nothing like they could ever imagine in their lives. God spoke to the Israelites and he says, I'm about to unleash the most powerful, unstoppable force in the universe, the destroyer. The destroyer is going to go through the greatest military and political power that the world has ever seen, which is Egypt at this point in time. It's going to go right through it like a knife through hot butter. The destroyer is going to plow through Egypt and take every firstborn Son, and there's only one thing God says that will protect you, Israelites. There's only one way you can face this ultimate force of the universe. Guess what it is? A lamb. A lamb. Cuddly, fluffy, nice, white, gentle, like the cutest, most innocent animal on the face of the planet. A lamb is the only thing that can protect you from the ultimate force in the universe. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's confusing at best, offensive to most modern minds at worst. I mean, most of us think of that. We're just like, this is offensive. Like, this isn't even logical, God. Like, you could have come up with a better story, but this is the story that God writes. And the only way this story makes sense is if we understand the broader story of the Lamb. The very first story of the Lamb is the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. Abraham has a son that he loves, Isaac, and uh, God says to me, he says, offer up your only son to me. Make an offering and prepare a sacrifice like you're going to sacrifice a lamb. But instead of sacrificing a lamb, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac. And 
Uh, this seems ludicrous to us. Again, to, to the modern mind, this is a ludicrous thought that God would ask a man to do this. And I remember the first time when I was reading through the Old Testament, when I came across this story, I stopped, which is a good thing to do when you come across a story that you're like, I don't think this is right or good or I'm confused. It's a good thing to do. Stop. And I stopped and I just began asking myself questions. I was like, God, like, I thought you were this loving, benevolent God, and, and now you're this God who's asking a father to sacrifice his only son. And just all these questions went through my head. Like, God, who are you? Like, God, how could you? Like, how could you do that? Would you ask me to do that to my son one day? And that's the thoughts that you have until you understand the context of what's happening in this story. This is a culture where ultimately, uh, within a household, members did not see themselves as individuals. So here in, in the West, we're a highly individualistic culture. We all see our own lives as independent from other people, and what I do only affects me. And just, it's, it's this whole broken society where we all see ourselves as independent pieces that are not a part of this larger puzzle. But in this cultural context, which is honestly more in the heart of God than, than our individualistic culture in the West, members of a, a family saw themselves as a part of a unit. And so what one did absolutely affected the rest, and it also brought judgment on the rest. And the firstborn son, they were the future of the family. They're the hope of the family. The family puts like all their stock in the firstborn son. But with that, the firstborn son gets all of the responsibility of the family. So they not only get the estate of the family, they get the responsibility of the family. And God is sending a message in this story that is unmistakably clear. And the message is that there is a debt on every family in every place in the world. Exodus 22, Numbers 2, Numbers 8, he says over and over and over again to the Israelites, he says, the life of every firstborn is mine unless you redeem it. So every year, every family had to pay so many shekels. It was the redemption price for the, for the life of their firstborn son. They had to pay for that to spare their firstborn son so that he wouldn't have to be sacrificed. The message is there is a debt of sin that is owed to God from every family across the face of the earth. And some, maybe you here in this room, you would say, like, that's absurd. It's absurd to me, the thought that somehow every person in the entire universe has this debt towards God. Like, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that there's this transcendent, moral absolute, this standard from God that he puts on every person and that we have to live up to that. Otherwise, we have a debt to him. I just don't believe that. Or if that is true, it's not right. But let me just put this in uh, context for you. Let me just say for a minute that that, like, weren't true, that there wasn't some God, that there wasn't uh, a transcendent moral absolute, that, that there wasn't this standard from God. Let's just say that uh, the day that we were born, every single one of us had an invisible tape recorder hung around our necks. And the only thing that tape recorder ever recorded was things that we said other people should do. She should do this. He should do that. I can't believe he did that. It only recorded the things we said other people should do. At the end of our lives, if we took that tape recorder and we played it back and compared it to every single one of our lives, every single one of us would fall short of our own moral standards. So even if there isn't a God who has this absolute moral standard, which he does, our own moral, none of us can stand up to any moral test. We all fail. 
We all fail. You don't even have to go to the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule to see that. Maybe you're, maybe you're like, okay, okay, that's fair. I get it. But here's what I don't understand. If there's a God, like a supreme, ultimate, all-powerful God, then why can't he just forgive? Like, why the whole story? Why all this work? Why have to go through all of that? Why can't he just, like, let bygones be bygones and forgive? Some people say, if there's a God and he's all-powerful, then surely he has the right to make the decision to just forgive. And the, the short answer to that is, no, he can't just forgive. To explain it, I'll put it in relational terms. Uh, if you have a friend and your friend does something against you, like not a small thing, but a big thing, like uh, they, they commit adultery with your spouse, or uh, they hurt your child, or something to that degree, there is a barrier between you and that friend. There's no denying it. There is something between you and that friend that is going to keep you from relating to that person. There's a debt that has been built up. And there's two ways you can go with that debt. One, you can make them pay the debt. So you can punish them by excluding them, by berating them, by trashing their reputation, by never talking to them again. You can make them pay the debt. What Christianity teaches us is that we're to forgive. But this is what forgiveness is made of. Forgiveness is made of me paying the debt. So forgiveness isn't just, hey, you know what, I let you off the hook, no big deal. And then I continue to carry this bitterness in my heart. It's not that easy. What forgiveness is made of, if forgiveness is made of me paying the debt. Forgiveness is made of when I want to trash their reputation because I'm so angry at what they did. I don't. When I want to yell at them, when I want to exclude them, when I just want to not see them, I don't. Because I've forgiven them. I've, I've removed their sin from them. And now I can relate to them again without that offense in the way because I've forgiven them. But I've absorbed that. I've had to take the pain of that. That's relational terms. If you think of it in, in social terms, the, the, the whole society. Imagine you're in a courtroom and there's uh, someone who's being judged and they've done something big, pretty significant, like they murdered someone, they raped someone, and they're there, and the evidence is stacked against them. Like, you're sure they did it. They plead guilty, I did it. And they say, I don't care that I did it, I'll do it again. And the judge looks at that person, and the judge says, you know what, it's not really that big of a deal. You can go free. You're off the hook, no punishment, no consequence. Every single one of us would be like, what? How do you, how do, you do it? Like, that's a, there would be an outcry against that judge because it's an outrage because someone has to pay and if that person doesn't pay then society will pay society will pay because now that person's free to go about doing it again and again and again with no consequence the person they did it against and the people they'll do it against will pay because now the offense the pain the destruction in their life is belittled like it no big deal someone always has to pay you can't just forgive. And for God to be a good God, he has to be not just merciful, but just. Mercy without justice is chaos. Justice without mercy is cruelty. For him to be a good God, he must be merciful and just, which means someone must pay. And that's why we have the story of the Passover. 
There are two principles in this Passover story that are absolutely astounding to me. Number one, not in this passage, but a little later in the same chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 22. We'll have it on the screen for you. God says to the Israelites, after you put the blood on your door, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. And just to put this uh, in context, sorry I didn't do this sooner, uh, the, the story of the Passover is so simple. It's this destroyer is coming and he's going to bring destruction and, and, and end the life of every firstborn son unless you sacrifice a lamb at twilight, eat it with your family over dinner, and then put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. When the destroyer comes through the entire land of Egypt, if he sees the blood on the doorpost, he won't kill the firstborn son because he knows that a lamb has been sacrificed in his place. So that's the context of the Passover. Sorry, I didn't do that earlier. And so chapter 12, verse 22, God says to the Israelites, he says, after you put the blood on your door, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. You know what this means? You could so easily read this and just pass right over what this means. What this means is that Israel still had their sin. When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, it's not like all of their sins were forgiven past, present, and future. They still had their sin. They were still going to be held account for their sin. It was one night that they were able to be spared of death. It was one night that they were able to be spared of judgment. Because the, the blood was on the door, the destroyer couldn't come in. But if they went out from behind the blood and they went out without being protected by the blood, they would be destroyed by the destroyer. It was only the blood on the door that protected them. What God's saying is he's saying, look, Israelites, I know that you're like my chosen people. I know that you're, you're biblically moral. I know that you seek to obey me, although sometimes you fall short. I know that you, you, like they worship false idols. You worship the true God. I know that they're oppressing you, and you're the ones being oppressed. And yet, in yourself, if you were to meet judgment tonight, you would find, whether it's on the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or the tape recorder standard, you would be lost tonight. He's saying, you by yourselves are no better than the Egyptians. And the final spiritual analysis, the, more, the morally ethical, the biblically righteous, the doctrinally proper, he says, if you go out tonight and you try and meet judgment on your own and you do not sit under the blood, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your beliefs, your doctrine, your ethical behavior, none of that will help you. You'll be as lost as the people you disdain the most in the world the Egyptians. And that's an amazing statement. It's a statement that should awaken our hearts to the reality that none of us deserve to be in this room, that none of us deserve a relationship with Christ, that it's got nothing to do with what we've done. It's got nothing to do with our upbringing or our background or how good we've been. It's got everything to do with the mercy and grace of God in our lives. Secondly, the principle of spiritual substitution. I hate to say it so bluntly, but in every household in Egypt, Hebrew households and Egyptian households. In every household, someone was dead on that night. In other words, the lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb was a substitute. The lamb paid the debt so the firstborn son did not have to pay the debt for the sins of the family. And every firstborn son in every Hebrew household on that night would have been sitting at the dinner table eating their meal, probably slowly, probably with a sick stomach, because they would have been eating their meal looking at the lamb, thinking to themselves, that lamb is dead, and if it wasn't, I would be. 
And here in a little bit, we're going to receive communion. As we receive communion, we can think to ourselves, which we should every time we receive it, thank you, Christ, that you died. And if you hadn't, I would have had to. Here's the deal. By that lamb, they escaped the destroyer death for one night, but they didn't escape death forever. They needed another lamb, a greater lamb to pay the ultimate price for their sin, which is why God says, stay in your house. He's saying, you're not only under this debt of sin still, you not only needed rescuing for one night, you needed a greater salvation. A, you needed a much deeper deliverance because of the, the depth of your sin. You scroll forward to AD 33, Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, celebrates the Passover meal. He asks his disciples to come together and he says, let's celebrate the Passover together. And when Jesus stands up, there would have been two enormous shocks for the disciples when he stood up that night. The first, the first shock when he stood up, the Passover meal when it was celebrated uh, in Jewish history, there's always a presider over the meal. And if you continue on in Exodus, there's some instructions for the presider over the meal. And so Jesus stands up as the one presiding over the meal to give some instructions for the meal. And as he stands up, what the disciples are expecting him to do is they're expecting him to take the bread, break the bread, and say, this bread is the bread of our forefathers representing the affliction of our forefathers. They wandered in the wilderness. They endured slavery from the Egyptians so that we would be free to enjoy the promised land, the blessings of God. That's not what he does. He stands up, he takes the bread, he, he gives thanks for it to God, he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. What he's saying is, ultimately, that it's not the bread of our forefathers. It's not the Passover back then. Ultimately, it's my body that will be given for you. I'm going to suffer the ultimate price so that you can have the ultimate freedom. Freedom not just from political and economic bondage, but freedom from sin and death itself. And that's the first shock when he says, this is my body which is given for you. The second shock would have come when he went to the cup. He goes to the cup and he takes the cup and he says, this cup is not representative of the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed for you. This cup represents my blood that was sacrificed for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Not the lamb's blood, but my blood will be spilled. My life will be given so that you might live forever. Jesus was saying, I am the lamb Tonight, on that night, those disciples would have been absolutely shocked that their, that their leader, their king, is going to be their savior, that he's going to go to the cross. And that night was unlike any other night. That night, as glorious as the Passover night was, that all Egyptian households wake up and their firstborn son is dead, and all Israelite households wake up and their firstborn sons are there for them to enjoy and delight in and have relationship with, that night was all the more glorious because Jesus went to the cross so that you and I, we could have life and life forevermore. This is why John the Baptist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 1, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's not like, hey, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm going to go on with my bugs and my wilderness crazy experience. 
No, he says, behold. He's he's, he's saying, don't just like let this pass by. Don't let this miss you. Don't let this become old news to you. This is not old news. This is good news. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We were dead, but we can be alive. We were lost, but we can be found. We were filthy. Our life was like filthy rags. We were going to get judgment forever. But now we can have peace and joy forever because of what he has done. Behold! You know, as I was preparing this message, I just felt the Lord just speaking to me. The church needs to behold Christ. Like today needs to be a day where we behold the Lamb of God and we see Him in all of His beauty, in all of His perfection, in all of His sacrifice, in all of His love. That we don't let this be a day where we just like come to church and we go through the motions and we go home and we're the same, but we come and we behold Him and His glory and His beauty and we we, we leave changed with our hearts filled with the love of God. That we might pour out the love of God into the city and neighborhoods around us. We need to behold the Lamb of God. One last thing. Notice there was incredible attention given to the quality of the Passover Lamb. It had to be perfect. So many specifications. A male, a year old, without blemish. No imperfections, no broken bones, no... Uh, blemishes or spots. It had to be sacrificed at twilight. It had to be fully cooked, not raw, not boiled, but roasted over a a fire. And if there were any leftovers, they had to be burned. So many specifications for the lamb itself. Notice how many specifications there were for the households, for the family members. Oh, that's right. There weren't any. Their ethnicity, their morality, their career, their knowledge of the Bible, their, how often they prayed, church attendance, nothing. It doesn't say anything about any of that. It just talks about the lamb a lot. Why? Because it didn't matter what they had done, who they were, how good they were. It only mattered how good the lamb was, how perfect the lamb was, how perfect the sacrifice was so that the blood could go on the door because the destroyer was only going to see the blood, not the family inside. Why does that matter? Because when you and I put the the blood of Christ on the door of our life and we surrender our life to Jesus and we say, Jesus, please protect me, rescue me from the destruction that I deserve. Please forgive me and make me clean. Please hide me behind your blood. It doesn't matter what you've done, who you are. You don't have to clean your life up. It just matters that the blood is on the door of your life. That's all that matters. If you're here today and you've never put the blood of the lamb on the door of your life, you've never come to that moment where you say, Jesus Christ, I know, I know that I've sinned. I know that I deserve to be destroyed. I know, but I I want you to protect me. I want you to spare me. I want you to cleanse me. I want to put your blood on my door. I want to just be covered by your blood. If you've never had that happened in your life, or maybe you're here and you're like, that may have happened, but I'm not sure. Like, man, I've gone to church for a long time, but I I just, I don't know, like, if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm forgiven. Look, today can be the day that that happens for you. Not even 20 minutes from now, or two days from now, or two years from now. Like, today can be that day for you. Like, right now, in this moment, You can call upon Christ. You can look on Christ. 
And, and you can say, put your blood over my life, and he will. The moment you call on Christ, you're saved. And you know what? None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Like, tomorrow we could meet the destroyer. And I'm not saying that like some fear, guilt trip, like iron brimstone. That's not what I'm, I'm just, it's reality. And if God is like tugging on your heart today and he's speaking, don't put that off. But respond to him. Say, yes, I want your blood on my life.